This morning I want to talk to you about faith. Faith in light of God's faithfulness, though. Think about what we just, what we just sang together, um, that God is faithful to us. That's really the critical element, you know. Um, that's sort of the underlying truth, even in this passage I'm about to read about your faith and my faith, is that God is faithful to, to us. How are we able to make it through the hardest things in life? Because God is faithful. Um, how is God able to make a way through in the biggest challenges of life and create victories where we see nothing but obstacles because he's, because he's faithful. You know, this morning, this message in particular, I had one sort of grid that I laid down on top of it uh, before, I, before I thought about what I was going to share with you this morning. And it really has to do with the integrity of the message. And this is the grid. It's what I'm about to say to you, the words I'm about to share, would these words hold up? If I were preaching these today in a persecuted country, if I were preaching these, say, in the northern part of Kenya, where Somali militant Muslims are attacking the church, burning churches, taking believers hostage, killing people, would it hold up in places um, and villages in India where angry Hindus wanting there to be one religion, one religion only, are doing everything they can to oppress anything that looks Christian? Would it hold up in Afghanistan, where people are in hiding right now because their names are known to the leadership, to the Taliban, they're being sought after one by one by one? Would what I say about faith, faith that's hard, faith in the middle of difficulty and hardship, would it hold up there? Because here's the, here's the truth. If, if it wouldn't hold up there, then it doesn't matter here. It's, it's not true here either. And I'm afraid that we preach sometimes an American version, a particularly westernized American version of faith that really is all about us, the things we can get, things we ought to be enjoying, the things that we ought to be able to lay claim to or speak over and that God should be giving us. And with this underlying implication of judgment that we pass to each other, if it's not happening for you, if it's not coming your way, if healing isn't there, if prosperity is not yours, if joy and satisfaction and everything has not found you yet, then you've got a problem with your faith. But man, that stuff just doesn't fly in the rest of the world. They don't live in that reality. I want to preach a message today from Hebrews chapter 11 that I hope would hold up anywhere any audience, any place, because this is who God is, and this is what God does for us. This is what God requires of us, and it's hard faith. Let's pray. Father God, in this limited window of time, recognizing we have so many competing influences in our lives, recognized and unrecognized influences, the time we spend online, stuff we watch on TV, the podcasts we listen to, the conversations that we have, the interactions with people just throughout the day, so many things shaping us, molding us, in a very real sense, discipling us. Father, I pray for a sacred time with you this morning. This time is brief. Our needs are great. Your word is true. Your spirit it's powerful, and we need you today. So speak, I pray. Teach us. Give us hearing. Give us understanding. Give us guts to do what your word says. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Start off in verse 32. Now, the context of this very briefly is this. We've seen in chapter 11 this great record of the faith of heroes in Scripture. People whose names, that by and large, if you've been in church very much, you probably know them. You know many of them, most of them. Pillars of the faith, Abraham, Moses, and others. And now we come to this sort of general synopsis statement. So many others. The writer of Hebrews is saying, you know, there are so many others. It's not just those great people at the peaks of our faith. There's so many others that just litter uh, the trail of Scripture with stories of faith. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets. These who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Let's talk about faith for a moment. I want to set the stage with this. I want to make sure that our foundational understanding of faith is well-rooted in truth and history. Today, again, is Reformation Sunday, and the Reformers define faith in three categories. This is a bit of a review. I shared this with you a few weeks ago, so I'm sure you remember these, particularly the Latin terms for them. So pardon the academia today, but it's important for us to see where we come from. The Reformers understood biblical faith to at least require these three components. These are the three legs of faith. First one is this, noticia. Noticia is what we would say is the content of our faith. We have to believe something. Now, for Christians, the what we believe is ultimately centered in someone. But noticia is that. What is the essence of what we believe? We place our faith in something, something particular. So in order to have faith, you've got to believe something, right, about someone. And that someone for us is Jesus. So what is it that we believe? That's noticia. That's information, the essence of it, the content of it. The second word is a census. That's the conviction that what we believe is true. Here's what we believe about Jesus historically. Here's what we believe that Jesus did for us. And we believe those things to be true. So you can know about the Christian faith. You can have information about it. You can be a scholar. You can know world religions. But your knowledge of the Christian faith doesn't change your life at all if you don't believe those things to be true, primarily the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You can believe Jesus is a great historical figure. You can believe he is like a prophet. You can believe he is like a Buddha. You can believe he is like one of many means to a better life, etc., etc., etc. If you don't believe the biblical content, they live perfectly, died sacrificially, rose bodily, and is coming again, then there's no salvation. So that's a census. The third element of faith, which ties it all together for us, is fiducia. Fiducia is this, it's the personal trust and reliance on what we believe. 
So in other words, it's not just understanding the content of Christian doctrine, and it goes beyond just believing that that content is actually true, that the things that the Bible says, the things that Jesus claimed, the things that the church has proclaimed throughout the years is true. It means I have personally placed everything on that. I trust that completely. I know that in order for me to be saved, it has to be through faith in Jesus. It's the songs that we have sung today. It's the content of our statements of faith. It's what we believe about salvation. It's what Dan shared in those five solas of the, of the Reformation. It's Christ alone. So that's what faith is. So now this passage, now understanding the, the basics of faith, this passage gives some really needed clarity on faith for us today. Because you and I live in the generation of weird definitions of faith, misguided understandings of faith, holy misappropriated applications of faith, prosperity, word faith, etc. And so now we've got something that just screams in the face of that and gives us some clarity on what faith is. On the one hand, faith does this. Sometimes, and maybe the key word there is sometimes, sometimes God responds to our faith by doing incredible things, acts of providence, you know, that's just where God's hand is at work. We may not see it as the miraculous, but we would nonetheless see God is doing that. As we look in hindsight, it's God doing that. And sometimes even the miraculous. And these stories that we see of faith, these are all statements of what God has done because the people in those stories trusted him to do amazing things. And that's what faith looks like sometimes. And maybe you've got some faith stories where you could say, I remember when God did this, when God answered this prayer, or when God provided this for me, or when God delivered me from this, God did something amazing. Maybe it's a story of healing, maybe it's a story of blessing, maybe it's an answered prayer, whatever it may be. You've got that story where God, whether we would say it's just the providential hand of God at work in all things, or something so miraculous that it transcends the normal activity of the world. That's, that's God at work. But this passage then immediately flips the equation and reminds us that sometimes God re responds to our faith by sustaining us through difficulty, through hardship, through suffering. You see, sometimes faith enables us to do hard things, amazing things, impossible things even. That's what faith does. Sometimes faith is God closing the mouth of a lion. But sometimes faith is what enables us to endure hard things, even seemingly impossible things horrible things, like suffering and dying. But both are aspects of faith, and God is sovereign in both of those. And that's the lesson we have to see. God is sovereign whether or not he's bringing about great victory or he's enabling us to persevere under great persecution and suffering. And either way, God is good. And what we have to see in this passage is that reality so in other words, the clarity we need on faith is faith doesn't mean you always get what you want. It doesn't mean that you always get what you pray for or ask for. It doesn't mean that everything is successful and prosperous as this world deems success and prosperity. That's not the way faith works. That's not a biblical picture of faith. And it doesn't mean if you're not being healed, if you're not being delivered, if you're not being set free, if you're not being released from prison, if you're not being released from the burden of your debts, it doesn't mean that it's because you don't have enough faith. God is at work always in his sovereignty and his goodness. And I guess the baseline understanding of faith for a, a faithful believer who doesn't quit, who doesn't give up, who stays on course is this. Whether God blesses me or whether God allows me and protects me through suffering, God is still God. Whatever God does, God is God. So let's look at those two aspects here just for a moment. 
in this passage. Two aspects of faith, both hard, but for very different reasons. You see, sometimes we've got faith that empowers us. That's what faith does. Sometimes it's faith that enables victories, successes, blessings. And we need the sort of faith, like we see in these examples of faith, these exemplars of faith. We need the sort of faith that causes us to be brave when we're afraid. We need that. We need the sort of faith that causes us to be strong when we're weak. We need the sort of faith that causes us to be certain of life even as we face death. And those are the stories that we see in all of this. They're not stories that try to embellish the heroism of the characters. It's not about the people. Um, When we study the story of David and the different aspects of faith in his life, it's not so that we would so admire David because he was so amazing and so unlike us. It was that we would admire God and that God works in the lives of people like David or Samuel or Moses or, or Abraham. Consider these characters that we listed just for a moment. And let me give you just a quick flyover of their life, maybe just enough to whet your appetite to read more. What about Gideon? Gideon obediently took an army of 32,000, pared it down to 10,000, and then inexplicably to him, Paired it down to 300, and armed with things that we would not consider deadly, at least not at a distance, like a torch and a pot, he defeated, he routed an army of Midianites, an army so large that the Bible says their camels could no more be counted than sand on the seashore. Now, for those of you who are thinking camels don't sound so intimidating, you've probably never been on one. But I'll tell you, they're frightful beasts. (laughs) Ask anyone who's ever sat on one. One, they're about 20 feet high. It's not like riding a horse. You're way off the ground. And two, they spit and they bite. They do all those things. I have to tell you this story. It's kind of funny to me. Let me entertain myself for a moment. When I was a youth director early in days, I was working at this little Methodist church in Weaverville, North Carolina. It was their tradition to do a living Christmas thingy, a nativity scene every year at the retirement home. And the church had these elaborate costumes we all dressed up in. So it's me and a bunch of teenagers, and I'm only 20 years old. And uh, I got to dress up like this, I don't know, I was one of the three wise men, I guess. I'm not sure how wise you can be at 20. And I knew I wasn't wise when they gave me the camel to hold. But I had this big scarf thing around my neck, this big whole hat thing, these flowing robes. And we're just sitting there, we're supposed to just stand there. It's not a parade or anything, we just stand there, you know. So I'm standing there holding the camel, real camel. And I feel this thing getting tight around my neck. And I feel like I'm choking. And I look over and the camel's got like three-fourths of my scarf down his gullet. I mean, he sucked that thing down and it's tied around my neck. These are frightful beasts, I'm telling you. <laughs> That's a true story. I pulled that thing out. It was all slimy and stuff. I don't know what camels eat. But three, I mean, this, were, this is serious. What about Barak? Barak obeyed God's word. Deborah, the prophetess, gave God God's word to Barak. He meets the army of Sisera. Sisera, according to Judges, has 900 chariots of iron and countless troops. Barak's got an army of 10,000 men drawn just from two tribes. And he routes them. He routes the army of Sisera. Samson's story you're probably more familiar with. Um, Samson, in spite of some of his flaws, he knew that God was able. He knew that God was working through him. And Samson, finally at the end, though he was made blind, gets his spiritual sight. And he calls out to God. And through that final act of God's grace and mercy, he's vindicated. He destroys the enemies of God and defeats the Philistines. Jephthah was an outcast, son of a prostitute. One commentary says Jephthah was like the Robin Hood of his day. 
But God called him back to deliver his people, and he did. Defeated a vast army of of Ammonites in Judges 11. David, many acts of faith, probably the one we most attribute to David was his defeat of Goliath. You know, it's the one we probably think of first. We think of David's faith. Of Goliath, he cried this. He said, it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. That's David's faith. And what about Samuel? Samuel lived a life of faith since he was little. Through faith, Samuel fearlessly delivered God's word to anyone at any time, even the unstable, ungodly King Saul. This was, this was faith. And then you have these following verses, verse 33 and 34. They administered justice, probably alluding to David, and then later King Solomon. They gained what is promised. That's Joshua and the children of Israel as they go into the land of promise. They shut the mouths of lions. How about Daniel? For you real Bible scholars, you know there are a few others that did that too. Samson did that with his hands, and David did that, and Benaiah did that. They quenched the fury of the flames. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. And then the one whose weakness was turned to strength, surely Samson in that final moment where he was tied up blind, shackled and powerless, and yet God returned amazing strength to him. Powerful in battle and routed the enemies, again sounds like Gideon. And then you have the reference to these women who are unnamed but known. You have the widow of Zarephath, whose son God raised through Elijah. You got the son of the Shunammite woman that was raised through Elisha. And all these stories of faith, all from faith, God did these things. Who's the hero of the story? God. People who believed in the power and might of God and trusted him, and look what God did. But here's some good news for you in all this, in that count of people, which is probably not lost on you, because there are some hints there already with the inclusion of Samson. The good news is this, that none of us need to be perfect. Our faith doesn't need to be perfect in order to be powerful. God doesn't respond just to the perfect people. You want powerful faith. It's not about you, nor about how much of this stuff called faith you can muster up. It's what is your faith in? What do you truly believe? Who do you have faith in to act? What sort of God is he? You don't need to be perfect to be powerful. Gideon. Gideon kept on testing God instead of just doing what he said. Gideon's model of testing is not a model for us to follow. We don't encourage people. Well, put out your fleece and see. No, if God has told you, you obey. Gideon was slow to obey. And what about Barak? Equally reluctant. Had it not been for Deborah, he probably would never have gone into battle. She had to challenge him. She had to push him. And what about Samson? Samson was a perpetual victim of his own lust. Samson is a poster child of wasted potential in Scripture. Jephthah. Do you know the story of Jephthah? You probably know more of the bad part than the good part. God gave him this great victory, and he made this ridiculous vow that whatever walks through my door next, I will sacrifice for you, Lord. And then his rashness and his foolishness, it's his daughter that walks through the door. He ruins this great victory. What about David? It's David's adultery that brought decades of pain into his house, and even the death of a child suffering and discontent and even the, the, the animosity of his own children and grandchildren. And Samuel, as good as Samuel was, Samuel had problems at home and apparently didn't lead his own household well because at the end of his life, when he puts his sons into positions of authority, the Bible says that they accept brides and greeds and they were unjust and not good characters, dishonest and scrupulous. It doesn't require us to be perfect. It does require us to have faith. But see, here's the essence of empowering faith. For all those stories that we see, the essence of empowering faith is this certitude. 
God is able. You and I need that kind of faith. We need that kind of faith that says, but God is able. Though I am not, he is. When I'm not strong, he is. When I'm not brave, he is. When I'm not able, he is. We need that sort of faith today. That's why the story is here. Will you have that kind of faith that that says God is able? I am certain that nothing is too hard for the Lord. You have to be certain of that. You have to be confident when you pray that God is able. He's not just benevolent. He's not just good. He's not just loving. He's all-powerful. And so that's the certitude of faith, the, the ability of God, the absolute ability of God. But sometimes faith has a different purpose. Sometimes faith works in us differently, necessarily so. Sometimes it's our faith that perseveres us. When you're reading that passage or hearing me read it aloud to you, it's kind of interesting how it turns so quickly, isn't it? To go from these great victories to great defeats. Well, where does faith fit into that? Because see, modern American faith doesn't have a place for that. We don't write books about that. We don't preach sermons about that. We're not telling people that to follow Christ might cost you something. I was listening to a devotional that John Piper gave, and, and he was talking about this, and I'm very loosely paraphrasing. You know, there was a time when to come to church in America was greatly to your value, that people might look down on you. They might think less of you. You get credibility for that. You get relational credibility, social credibility for that, for being in church. In fact, you might doubt people or wonder about the character of people who didn't go to church. Now that's flipped in our time. Now the good guys have become the bad guys. And now to go to church, what kind of church? Does your church believe this? And now depending on what you believe and what sort of church you attend, then you might be bigoted or sexist or whatever it may be, narrow-minded, dogmatic, intolerant. You might be the enemy. You know, sometimes this faith perseveres us, but we don't tell people the cost. But see, that's the thing, is I was thinking about this message in the context of, say, preaching it in Kenya or India, or if ever given the opportunity in a place like Afghanistan, man, that's real. Because what you're saying then to those folks is this, listen, I don't know fully, I've never experienced what you might experience, but I get it. I get that to follow Christ might cost you your family. They might disown you, have nothing to do with you. I I get that following Christ might be a total break with your own sense of culture and history and and identity. I get that in some places this might make you a marked person. But all I can say to you is this. I I have to be able to believe and show you so that you believe that he's worth it. That the glory of Christ is worth it. Come to Christ anyway because he's worth it. Not this Americanized gospel that says, come to Christ because, man, you're going to get some good stuff. Oh, he's going to bless you. He's going to give you so many benefits. No, come to Christ because you might not get the promise in this life. In fact, this life, you might be one of the ones that's tortured or imprisoned or even, God forbid, sown in two. But there is another city. There is a better home. There is a lasting reward. It's all ours in Christ. See, we need the sort of faith that enables us to handle hardship, oppression, persecution, torture, and even death for the sake of Christ. I feel almost foolish even saying that because it's just so theoretical. So easily said in this room, 
because it's not something any of us yet have to fear. I'm telling you, real faith requires that. And here's just one guy's take, and I could be wrong because I'm not a prophet. I suspect the reality of persecution will not always be at a distance from us. I suspect that the reality of persecution for being faithful to Christ is going to get closer and closer to your door and mine. And we need the sort of faith that stands up. You see, not only does faith do and affect great things of all sorts, faith also enables us to suffer the greatest and hardest and most terrible things. And please see this in the text, because this is so critical. Whereas the modern faith teachers might make you think people who are suffering and going through hardship is because of their own lack of faith, the Bible emphatically says the opposite. Listen to these phrases. First of all, it says all these people through faith. Faith was a constant for them. Now, they were not perfect, but through faith they did this. It says of them the world was not worthy of them. No, God's commending them. These weren't people like everybody else. These are faithful people so different. The world is not worthy of these kind of people. It says at the end they were commended through their faith, and yet this happened. Does that shake up your idea of faith or what God might do in your life? Does that shake up your understanding of why bad things might come your way? Will you still be someone who walks through life with faith? Will you still be someone of whom the world is not worthy because you live on a different plane for the glory of the king? Will you still be someone in spite of who's committed through their faith? And through their faith in God, or though their faith in God ultimately cost them everything, it was their faith in God that enabled them to know he's worth it. That's why they didn't relent. If time permitted today, we could talk about the stories of the, of the martyrs of the Reformation even, not just the biblical martyrs, but the martyrs of the Reformation. People who believed so completely in the truth of God's word, the beauty of the gospel, and the, and the Christ found in it, that they went to their deaths for it. Now, let me make this point clear just for a moment, just in case anything might be misunderstood. Our point here. The position that we should hold as Christians is not that suffering is good, at least intrinsically good. In other words, we're not saying that suffering in and of itself or by itself is a good thing. We don't seek it. We're not trying to be martyrs. Even today, as I was thinking about how do I pray for those facing persecution, knowing that God is allowing it, knowing that God is working through it, knowing that part of our prayer simply has to be God sustain them in it, We don't seek it. We know it's not that suffering is good in and of itself. Our position is this. No matter what suffering comes, God is better. God is better. That's the position of the word. That's the position that the author of Hebrews gave them. That's the position we should hold. That's the essence of persevering faith. Persevering faith says this. Whatever happens to me because I'm faithful to Christ, this I believe. God is better. God is better. These words are so strong. I probably repeated these more times than I can count in messages. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And those words came from someone who well knew suffering. 
who well knew beatings and imprisonments. History suggests to us that by the time the Apostle Paul was in advanced age, that he was crippled physically from all the beatings administered, from all the pain suffered. And yet, he says, light and momentary, not to be compared to the eternal weight of glory. Now, for Paul, those weren't words. That's life. That's got to be our position, that whatever he allows can't be compared to what he's going to give. So how does our faith then develop? What can we be doing to to nurture that, to, to spawn that, to develop that in our own lives? From this text, I just had a few thoughts, and then I'm going to close, and we're going to pray. I think one way our faith can develop, and it's the primary reason why I believe these scriptures are preserved for us, is this. You and I got to dive into these stories of faith. I didn't go deep into Samson and Barak and Jephthah, but dive into those stories of faith. And in those stories of faith, believe in what you see, what you see that God has done. Believe in that. See that. This is God. This is the unchangeable God. Dive into those stories. Be encouraged by them. There's a reason why faith stories are there for us, for our encouragement, for our edification. One other aspect that's just been spinning in my head these last several weeks because this theme of trusting God even when you can't see or understand, is all through Genesis, and we're going through Genesis on Wednesday nights, is this constant reminder that you and I have to obey everything we know. Faith grows in obedience, especially, listen, especially when you're obeying things that are hard to obey. Especially when you're obeying things that you don't understand why God wants you to do it that way. Those are the times and places where faith really grows. Not when we obey the easy or the commonplace, but when we look at the scripture and we say, God, I don't understand why you require that of me. You know, the whole world thinks this way. The ethic of the world, the social norm of the world, the culture of the world says this. But God, your word says this, whether that's about sex or money or whatever. So God, I'm going to obey you without having to understand. I'm going to obey you when, it, when it's hard and it challenges me and it makes me different than everybody or, or it makes me go against my own desires. I'm going to do those things. And here's what's going to happen. I'm going to let God show me why he commands what he does. Over time, by by faith obeying, I'm going to trust that God's going to show me. He's going to show me why he's good and why his commands are good and life-giving and reward me over, over time. Another way our faith develops is simply thinking through critically, rationally, until we change our perception of hardship. That hardship doesn't mean the absence of God. It doesn't necessarily mean the punishment of God, though certainly that could be there, the discipline of God. And we should be asking God in hardship for the faith to hang in there and the ability to learn the lesson we need to learn in it. Instead of always wanting to get out of it, instead of always fleeing it, instead of trying to escape it, God, what are you teaching me here? And God, help me hang on here. And asking God for that, asking God. On the positive side, when was the last time you asked God what he wants of you? God, what do you want of me? What would you have me dream of doing? What would you have me begin? What do you want to do in my life? What do you want to do through me? Have you ever wanted God to do something big in your life or significant in your life or something that honors him in your life, something for the benefit of someone else? Just pray in that honest prayer. God, what do you want to do with me? 
What do you want to do with what I have, what I can do? And then asking for the faith to do it. Show me what you want from me. And then just stay the course. The great challenge of Hebrews is this. Don't abandon the faith. Look, stay the course. Faith grows over time and through obstacles. It grows as we gain victories. It grows as we endure defeats. But over time, as we remain faithful, faith grows. And we see him more and more and more. As I look at this passage, which was key to everyone in chapter 11, which we're wrapping up now, every single person there was looking forward to something better. Ask God to give you that kind of perspective. I'm looking for something better. I'm looking for something better, something more. I love these two quotes, and I'll leave you with them as I close. One is from John Piper. He said, God himself is better than what life can give to you now and better than what death can take from you later. Similarly, Sam Storms says this. He says, faith is when the human heart says, although I've been offered everything I could possibly dream of, Jesus is better. Faith is when the human heart also says, although I've lost everything I dreamed of, Jesus is better. You have that kind of faith? And that's hard faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you first for the examples of faith. Thank you for the challenge of faith. Father, thank you that we can see the reward of faith. Sometimes it's here, sometimes it's now, sometimes it's victory. Sometimes it's unseen. Sometimes it's a promise yet to be fulfilled, but we trust in you. Father, in all of this, I pray that this would be so much more than academic or intellectual. It wouldn't be just us trying to convince ourselves, but God, your Holy Spirit would convince us of truth. Lead us into all truth, I pray. Sink these truths deep within us so that we believe them, we trust them, we, we live this. And Father, most of all, I'm thankful that you are faithful. You are faithful to us. In our imperfections, you are perfect. When we're doubting, when we're weak, when we're failing, you remain faithful. And Father, I also thank you that you promised to, to give faith. Lord, we are like the man who prayed, I believe, help my unbelief. Help me to believe in your great promises. Help me to believe in eternity. Help me to believe in the great reward that stands for those who are faithful to the end. Help me believe like the Apostle Paul that this light and momentary affliction cannot be compared to the eternal weight of glory that will be revealed. And Father, if suffering should be ours, may we suffer well as your children. May our suffering be a testimony to what we believe that's so much bigger. We will not be knocked off our game. We will not be moved from our position. We will not stop believing you. Though you slay me, yet I'll trust you, as Job said. May that be true of us. May we have that kind of faith. But God, I pray also we'd see some great victories because of faith. We'd ask for specific things and ask you to show us specifically what you want us to do and be about. And then by faith, jump into those things. For you're still the same God. You're still the same God that shuts the mouth of lions and quenches fires and defeats enemies and brings justice and brings life from death. You are that same God today. 
Oh, Father God, forgive us for not seeking you for great things. Faith, we need faith. Give us faith. What does God want you to seek him for today? What does God want you to say to him? How does God want you to pray? Before we sing a closing song, with your head bowed and eyes closed just for a moment, let me speak to anyone in this room who needs to go to the starting point of faith. Before God intends to do anything through you or in you, God wants to do something for you, to you. He wants to change your heart. He wants to give you a new one. He wants to erase the past and forgive you of your sins. He wants to place his spirit in you, bringing you new life. He wants to make you his own child, his own son or daughter. He wants to draw you to himself. He wants you to know him, love him, enjoy him. And the only way to do that is through faith, faith in what he has done for you. He sent Jesus to that end. He sent Jesus to bridge the gap, the chasm that exists between sinful man and a holy God. So Jesus comes. Jesus keeps every command of God. He fulfills it all. Tempted in every way like us, but he never sins. And when he goes to the cross, he goes as a perfect sacrifice, a fulfillment of the foreshadowing of all the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Now this one's perfect and this one's complete. For Jesus died not for sins of his own, but for the sins of the world. And he paid a price, offered a sacrifice, and God received it. How do we know that God received the payment paid by Christ? Because he vindicated him. And he raised him from the dead three days later. And Jesus said, this resurrection, the life that I am, this is for all who believe. Whoever believes in me will never die, he said. Do you believe this? Do you believe this resurrection can be yours? Do you believe you can have a new life now and an eternal life with me forever? Then come to me by faith. Know that though you're a sinner, I will forgive your sins if you will but ask. Know that your sins deserve death, but I am offering you life if you'll receive it. Know that in this world is nothing but darkness and despair. And ultimately, at the end, death. And I'm rescuing you out of it, so come follow me. I'm the way, and I'm the truth, and I'm the life. And there's no way to God but through me. This is it. But if you'll come to me, I'll save you. You'll be mine forever. Come to me by faith. Faith can be small, can be incomplete. You can come with questions yet unanswered. But you got to come. you got to come. Father, I pray you'd save someone in this room, save someone listening today who comes to you by faith. God, save me a sinner. Give me your Holy Spirit in me. Change my heart and my life. I want to follow you. And Father, build the faith of us all. Faith for the victories. Faith for the suffering. May we be faithful to you because you're faithful to us. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.